welcome to this edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. Well, uh, David, we had a very interesting conversation with uh, somebody who I greatly respect and admire for many years. He's been a friend, of, I guess, for more than 30 years. We've been uh, competitors in our industry and collaborators as well. Michael Adams is the dean of the market research industry, in my opinion, in this country. He's been at it a very long time. His company just celebrated in 2020 his 50th anniversary. He even outdid my my record. I'm really disappointed about that. But he is a, he is a very thoughtful guy. He's written six books, uh, one of which has been uh, identified as one of the top 100 books written, most important books written in Canada. So, you know, he's got a lot of uh, of insights to share and one of the reasons that uh, that I thought it would be good to have him on our podcast is I knew that he would provide our listeners with a better understanding of the differences between Canada and the US at in this this particular time of uh, the relationship and and that he would provide uh, insights to uh, what is going on um, between the two countries. And I think the answers will be surprising to our listeners, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I don't. I think you'd be hard pressed to find a single person in the country that knows more about Canada and the people of Canada than he does. He spent 50 years studying the attitudes, the uh, attributes, uh, uh, you know, and the interests and, and uh, of, of Canadians. But yeah, so we the, the conversation ranged widely. I mean, certainly the discussion about the U.S. is very, very important. He also talked about the differences within Canada, Western alienation. We touched on uh, COVID-19. We touched on the trucker convoy. So really a broad uh, sort of understanding about uh, historical context, but also what's going on right now. I think it'll be a very interesting conversation for people. It's more of a national and U.S. focus, but then at the end we talk uh, for 15 minutes or so specifically about Atlantic Canada. Uh, Michael has been a pioneer in social values research in in this country. And the important part of that is that, uh, you know, as he said, uh, Context is needed to understand social values in Canada. And he's used the, the U.S. As, uh, as the contextual um, basis for looking at our values in Canada. And the thing that he points out, and he's got data to prove this, which is, uh, which is important, is that our, our cultures are actually diverging. Uh, we're becoming more different than more alike uh, to Americans. That will surprise many people. But it also uh, talks about, uh, you know, the challenges that both countries have uh, going forward in, in addressing the issue of populism and, and what possibly could happen in our country uh, based on uh, the social values that Canadians currently have. So I think it's a really important conversation and uh, I think people will, will learn a lot from this conversation. Uh, so uh, it's a longer conversation than normal, and um, uh, I think we should get right into that conversation, don't you? Because uh, yeah, sounds good. This, this will be an interesting one for people to listen to. I'm very pleased to welcome my friend Michael Adams to the Insights Podcast. Welcome, Michael. Well, it's great to be here, Don and David. 
Michael, we have known each other for a long time, both as business competitors and collaborators for the market research industry in Canada. I consider you the dean of the market research industry in Canada, frankly. Not only are you the founder of Enveronics Research and its associated companies, but you are the author of six acclaimed books. David? So, Michael, let's start by finding out about your professional career beginning with your decision to start a market research company. How did Environics come to be? It does seem like only yesterday that a small group of us university friends, united by our membership in the Young Progressive Conservative Party on campus, decided to form a research company. We decided we could be pollsters, just like Lou Harris or George Gallup. Uh, we did some political polling in those early days, but we formed Environics to do social research. I had studied politics at Queen's University and became fascinated by the election surveys undertaken by Dr. John Meisel, the head of the department. And as students at Queen's, uh, Dr. Meisel used us to pretest his questionnaires on the innocent citizens of Kingston with our clipboards in hand and so on. I got my honors BA in politics in 1969. And instead of going to the University of Toronto or Osgoode Hall Law School, which most of my friends did become lawyers, I decided that I'd get a master's degree in sociology at the U of T and learn more about the theory and practice of sociological survey research. And indeed, as partial fulfillment of my master's program, I surveyed American draft dodgers and resistors who were in Toronto at the time, escaping serving in the, uh, in the American uh, army in, uh, in Vietnam. So in the spring of 1970, I'm age 24, um, I did not go off to Europe as a reward for completing my degree, but I started, uh, I started in work. I, I walked uh, from campus over to Bay and Bloor uh, in downtown Toronto in a building that actually had an elevator operator. That's how long ago it was. And, um, and I was like a kid in a candy store. We kind of made up studies that we thought the government should fund. We'd knock on the door and we do studies like, well, what was it? Like, you know, what was going on Sunday in Ontario other than people going to church and found that people actually wanted to do more than just go to church and then go home. Um, they wanted to have a little fun on Sunday as well. Uh, we did a study, golly, again, a 24-year-old guy, a study on pornography and movies. And we did this for the censor board, which we had in those days. <laughs> and, uh, and then another one more seriously on what parents, teachers, and students thought should be taught in public schools. And we even did one on mixed income housing way before that kind of concept uh, took off. That was for Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. So, I mean, this was, this is just amazing that you could start a business. Uh, and, I, and I felt so supported by the older generation who gave a young guy like me and, and our colleagues a chance to do this kind of study. Uh, and, uh, you know, so there was a lot of nurturing by the, the older generation, people like Bill Davis and Peter Lougheed and others like that, uh, who, uh, who, who helped us. So from those early days, now Environics, of course, is one of the largest Canadian-owned market research companies. In 2020, you celebrated a 50th anniversary. So just working back the timeline that we just discussed, what was that milestone like for you looking back on five decades of, uh, of, uh, of market research? Well, you know, privately, I was sort of proud of it, but, you know, I'm a party guy and I wanted a party, but COVID came along and uh, we didn't have any parties. And as you know, Zoom is not the same thing. 
Um, so uh, <clears throat> uh, we did a few things, uh, but again, it was it was mainly online. Uh, you can't believe that 50 years have flown by, but I was inspired to reflect on the stages of my career in this, you know, when 50 years comes by. Uh, you know, I thought of the early days in the 70s when we struggled even to make payroll on some weeks in the 80s when we brought polling to the Globe and Mail, the national newspaper. They'd never uh, done polling, uh, you know, had a systematic relationship with a polling firm before. Uh, and we even wrote up our own results for publication. Sometimes we were on the front page and once in a while, even above the fold. In the 90s and 2000s, the company expanded and we got into fields like social values, research and big data, communications, even employee motivation. So it makes you feel grateful and humble when you realize that uh, how you, uh, you want to be, uh, what you want to be part of gave so many people an opportunity to have careers and lives and support families and so on. And, uh, and then at the same time, you're doing something you hope that your country is grateful for because you're helping them, you hope through good survey research, understand themselves better and understand their country better. So it feels pretty good, but you know, I'm a Canadian and you've got to be kind of humble about this and, uh, and realize just, you know, like, it's like some people say they chose their parents uh, wisely. <laughs> I guess I chose my country wisely. Can't imagine in hardly any other country, this, this kind of a career being able to happen. Michael, Enveronics has long uh, been a leader in supporting national standards uh, for our industry in Canada. Both you and Barry Watson, the company's president and CEO, have been active uh, over a long uh, tenure of time uh, in ensuring strong national, a strong national association for the market research industry. Why is having a, a, a strong national association so important to our industry? Well, you know, unlike medicine and law, Don, uh, marketing and social survey research is not a regulated profession. Uh, as I showed in 1970, practically anybody can hang up their shingle <laughs> and say they're a pollster or a market researcher. So in such an industry, you really do need an industry group dedicated to the highest possible standards of that industry and the enforcement of those standards. So in the public mind, pollsters are judged by the accuracy of their you know, their horse race polls during election periods. Uh, and in general, Canadian pollsters have done pretty well when measured by that standard. Uh, part of the reason for this is that the industry self-regulates and practically everybody wants to join the industry association. They want that good housekeeping uh, stamp of approval. So that's why uh, we need the Canadian Research Insights Council, which you and my colleague, Barry Watson, uh, the president of, of Enveronics Research, as you pointed out, uh, are credited with co-founding and uh, the, the current form of, uh, of the industry association and, and keeping it strong. So uh, it's important. The company has a well-established uh, reputation for its social uh, values research, which really had its roots in the early days of the company. Why is social, social values research so important in your opinion? Well, <laughs> Now you're, now you're getting into something near and dear to my heart. When I started out, I probably didn't know what social values were. I probably thought, well, there are people with values. They're good people. And people are bad people. They have no values. But actually, <laughs> bad people have values, too. We just might not like them. But So after I started Focus Canada, which was a research program that tracked 
opinions and attitudes on public policy issues and uh, politics and so on. Uh, and, and that was in the late 70s and early 80s. I became fascinated by the forces behind those changes in uh, those changing opinions and attitudes and behaviors as well. And I discovered in the mid 80s an association with my friends uh, at a company called Crop in Montreal and colleagues in Europe uh, was a study of social values, which uh, began changing quite rapidly um, after World War II. Uh, and so we began tracking the orientation of Canadians to concepts like authority, uh, religion, patriarchy, materialism, hedonism, spiritual meaning, and a variety of other values and what we call mental postures. In the early 1990s, we began doing so in the United States, and that in turn led me to be writing books because I was seeing a different, a different values evolution in the two countries, in Canada and the United States. And I said, wow, um, I need to write this down to help myself understand what's going on. Uh, now, in uh, 2003, Enveronics Analytics uh, was founded to provide big data analytics to your clients. Can you provide some background on the decision to found this new venture and perhaps some examples of the types of work undertaken by this company? Well, I partnered with Enveronics Analytics, um, with actually with the leader of Enveronics An Analytics, Jan Kessel, a really smart lady who had been the leader in the pioneering geodemographic company CompuSearch, which you and I would have heard about in the 80s and so on. Anyway, Jan approached me in the early 2000s with the idea that a company that combined demographics, behavior, social values, and geography would have a distinct place in the Canadian marketplace. Demographics, of course, are those things like our age, our gender, our education and income. Behavior covers everything from what we buy and what media we prefer to what we do in our spare time. Values are what we believe. Geography is where we live, where we shop, where we work. And all this together gives you big data, which is highly valued by clients uh, who, for example, want to target messages to customers and potential customers via digital media or regular mail or, uh, or traditional media, uh, or figure out where to locate that next retail outlet. Uh, Enveronics Analytics serves a North American market. It is a fabulous, successful company. There are several hundred employees, most of them quite young, um, who only a few years ago were getting top grades in the STEM subjects, that is, you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. It <laughs> reminds me, I did very well to get a gentleman's B in statistics at, uh, back at Queen's University in 19, probably 67. Uh, anyway, more than a year ago, we sold Enveronics Analytics to enable the business to scale up, uh, but we continue to have a strong relationship with that company, sharing the brand, uh, data, and many customers. So we mentioned earlier that you've written six books, probably the most influential is Fire and Ice in 2003 where you made a compelling argument that Canadians and Americans were increasingly viewing the world differently uh, due to diverging values. The book won the Donner Prize and was recognized by the Liter Literary Review of Canada as one of the 100 most important books ever published in Canada. Can you provide our listeners with a high-level summary of the main difference in values or how those values are diverging between Canada and the U.S. based on your research? Okay, so here we go. 
If we have another couple of hours, I could give you the short version. But no, I'll try to do it in a couple of minutes. Yeah, when you when you do polling, as, as Don knows, and research, and you have to write about it, you have to put it in some sort of context. So you put things in historical context, and you put things in comparative context, like how do we compare to America or Europe or other countries in the world? So... Uh, for the for the Americans, I think you know if you had to sum it up in a in an elevator version, it would be you know life, liberty, and happiness. And for Canadians, we know it's peace, order, and good government. Uh, in each case, the country, as I sometimes joke, gets two out of three, which ain't bad. And you choose the two out of three that you think each of the countries is actually able to manage. Um, so we are a culture of mutual accommodation. Uh, examples being, of course, the early accommodation between the French and the English. When the English won in 1759, there weren't really many Englishmen here. They they had to accommodate the French. They were the only people in Canada at the time pretty well, uh, and except for Atlantic Canada. So you, you get that accommodation, the French-English thing from early days. Then the accommodation among the regions and provinces, uh, now the three territories, um, you get the policy of accommodation of cultures, which we, of course, have a unique Canadian name for it. It's called the policy of multiculturalism, which we now extend to demographic and identity diversity. And, uh, and then rather belatedly and fifthly, we're finding a way for mutual accommodation and reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians. In fact, we're kind of a Petri dish of how people uh, as diverse as indigenous people uh, and uh, colonial powers and then people coming from all over the world are going to live together and get along together. In terms of social values, we track the values that most distinguish Canadians when compared to Americans. So the ones that sort of shoot, uh, come out uh, most notably for the Canadians are a sense of duty, a questioning or rejection of deference to authority, uh, a flexible families, that's Adam and, e, uh, Adam and Steve, as well as Adam and Eve, uh, post-material mindsets, uh, saving on principle, and discriminating consumerism. For the Americans, what distinguishes them from the Canadians are religiosity, patriarchy, a traditional family, confidence in big business, a need for status recognition, and ostentatious consumption. So these are kind of different trajectories and into what people find meaningful and as, as parents, as consumers, as, as uh, people in the workplace and so on. So we could spend about five minutes on each of these, uh, but some concrete indicators maybe are more poignant. So this is astounding, but half of Americans, 40, it's 49%, think, and this is currently, the father of the family must be master in his own house. Now, you would think, why would that be any different in Canada? Right? How would it, why would it be any different here? But the number in Canada is 24%. It's less than half of the proportion uh, uh, that is in the United States. 58% of American men think father must be master, compared to only 32% of Canadian men, which is actually lower than the proportion of American women who think father should be master in the house. It's 41% of American women. And in Canada, the Canadian women, it's down to 16%. So those that is pretty interesting. And, and I probably, that would be a chapter in one of my books or even, even in every book, because it's such an interesting theme. 
but the structure of it, that's the first institution any of us meets. We come into this world and the structure of authority, the hierarchy in the family is going to be stamped in our brain. It's going to be something that we take to us when we go to school. It, we're going to take it when we go into the, into the workplace. It's going to be a structure in our mind when we go and want to vote for different parties and, and so on. So it's, it's really interesting. And uh, now uh, another indicator of difference, 15% uh, of Canadians would have voted for Donald Trump in 2020, um, but 67% would have voted for Joe Biden. So there's a clear, uh, and, and, and actually we, we asked Canadians, where would you rather vote? And many of them said, well, I think it's more important we, that we could vote in the United States because there it would really matter. Here, no matter who we elect, you know, everything stays the same. They're all compromising on stuff and so on. Um, anyway, Biden would have carried Alberta in the election, even though, you know, Trump was promising to get uh, to keep the Keystone Pipeline and Biden was going to get rid of it. And that's pretty important to Albertans. Mm -hmm. So, and to maybe to end with uh, an eye-popping kind of a statistic, the America, American gun death rate is 10 per 100,000 every year. In Canada, it is two per 100,000 every year. Five times the rate. Chicago, 800 people die every year of gun deaths in Chicago. Toronto, my city, with the same population of about two and a half million, does uh, well to kill 80 people. 800 versus 80, same population. Again, you could write a chapter about why is that. And of course, we know that the people are a lot, a lot of the people are the same, but uh, there are a lot of a lot of things going on in each society that make people angry. And of course, there's the ubiquity of guns in, in the United States. I'll stop there for a while. <laughs> well, we could, this is a really interesting topic, right, David? This is, this is something most Canadians uh, do not understand, but it's important to understand that, that those differences, I think, and, and, and it helps us uh, gauge the kind of country we are for sure. Another important book, Michael, you wrote uh, in the uh, late 90s was Sex in the Snow. I always liked that title, by the way. I thought it was really provocative for, for Canadians especially, uh, which segmented uh, Canada into 12 uh, value segments. Tell us why this value segmentation was important at the time and, and perhaps how your seg segmentation work has evolved over time. You know, Sex in the Snow. <laughs> um <laughs> I chose that title because I was being interviewed by a reporter uh, from La Presse in Montreal. And uh, <clears throat> I guess they'd hit the 95 referendum. So it was, things were pretty interesting in Quebec at that time. And he said, um, so things seem pretty boring here in the rest of Canada, you know? And, and I said, well, you know, we are, I don't think we're that boring. I think there's, there's sex in the snow. There is, we are an interesting people. Anyway, when I came up with the book, I remember an old girlfriend came up to me and said, you know, Michael, you're interesting, but you're not that interesting. <laughs> and so, and it went, but it was not an autobiography. It was a story about what is going on underneath that snow, the Great White North, that uh, I, hope, uh, I hope makes us a bit more interesting than our stereotype. Well, to some extent, demography is destiny. There are certain things in, in common to each gender and each age group as we pass through life. 
But there are also huge value divides among people of the same sex and the same age group. You know, is that 50-year-old woman? Is she gay or straight? Is she a conspicuous consumer or a discriminating consumer who cares about her environmental footprint? You don't know unless you talk to her and observe her behavior. And our clients must know this if they are to fashion products and services for her and communicate with her with, with her with messages that uh, uh, resonate and on media that she's paying attention to or using. In Sex in the Snow, I segmented elders, people born before 1946, baby boomers, people born between 46 and, and the mid-60s, like uh, at least I think two of the three of us, and, uh, and, and then Gen X in that book. Uh, sub- subsequently, we've segmented millennials and Gen Z. These are the latest uh, group. Uh, and uh, the Gen Z are, you know, born be- uh, since 1995, and they're now uh, entering adulthood, or at least they're trying to. Uh, and there are anywhere between three and seven social values tribes within each generation. Among the boomers, for example, we have social values tribes ranging from the autonomous rebels, the first ones to say to mom and dad, I'm not going to go to church anymore. <laughs> and dad says, yes, dear, as long as you live in this house and I live with your mother. So, and uh, everything to that, to the, to the social hedonists. And of course, these for these people, the best time of work, the work day is at five o'clock when the work day is over. Some are as traditional as their parents. Others have completely and utterly rejected the values that their parents brought them up with. Um, and, you know, religion, uh, is a is, was a major factor uh, in Quebec, a huge factor in the late fifties uh, and early sixties, leading to a quiet revolution, and so on. So these these value changes and the segmentation within the various generations is extremely important in everything from politics to consumer marketing to uh, how you organize things in the workplace. Uh, Michael, uh, you know, I'm still trying to figure out where I fit in that segmentation uh, model. Uh, Maybe you can help me out after this podcast. (laughs) More recently, you published, uh, Can It Happen Here? Canada in the Time of Trump and Brexit. The book takes a look at the populist political trends in Western countries and poses the question, could it happen here? Um, this book appears to build uh, on the findings of fire and ice. Tell us about the premise of the book and its conclusions. Well, after the election of Trump, in fact, we were all watching, right, that election. And I think we went to bed really not knowing. But when we got up in the morning, we said, oh, my God, he won. How, how could this have happened? Um, I think it took me three hours that morning banging out a book proposal on my computer to realize that the Canadians would want to know if they can elect Trump, could it happen here? So, you know, a, a book proposal is usually a couple of thousand words. Took it to my agent, took it to a publisher who said, uh, could you get us a manuscript in three months so we can, but it took me a little longer. Although it it just, it was a culmination really of, of, a, of, of certainly a, of an evolution from fire and ice. I wrote a book called American Backlash. Um, and then even, you know, uh, even sex in the snow and so on. So first of all, you have to know everything that happens in America also happens in Canada. Okay. Everything. As I've already said, there are patriarchs in Canada, just as there are in the United States, the people who believe father must be master of the house. 
There is gun violence in Canada, just as there is in America. But the scale is very different in each country. And the scale makes a qualitative difference to what it is like to live in each country. As time goes on, I'm seeing not a convergence, but a divergence of the, of the values trajectory in important ways in each of the two countries. In the current context, a third of Americans are anti-vax or, or vaccine hesitant. In Canada, the number is less than one in 10. The result is that over 900,000 have died of COVID in the United States and only 35,000 in Canada. Like gun violence, our rate is a fraction of that in the United States. Canada has xenophobic populism, but not nearly to the scale of the United States. Uh, Trump won in 2016 and was only narrowly defeated in 2020. Our Trump, or perhaps Trump light, is Max Bernier of the People's Party. Uh, and he did, he's yet been successful in getting a seat in Parliament. He got 1.6% of the vote, again, on popular, populism and xenophobia in 2019. And on the, on the, uh, on the anti-vax or vaccine hesitancy uh, wave, he got up to uh, uh, 5% or nearly 5% in 2020. Half of Americans have lost confidence in their democracy and the fairness of their elections. The vast majority of Canadians have not. Um, in, uh, you know, we have Republicans, the majority of them think the last election was stolen. Uh, conservatives and liberals don't, you know, when they win and lose, don't question the functioning of our democracy, uh, even when they lose. Um, I mean, if you go way, way back in terms of, you know, the differences between Canada and the United States, I think a, an extremely important a values difference is a demographic difference, is a historical difference, and that is that we did have slaves in Canada, and some have said as many as 1,500, but we did not have a slave economy, and we did not fight a civil war over the issue. And I think that the legacy of slavery in the United States is, you know, where you, that's the first chapter, first two presidents of the United States were slave owners, um, John Graves Simcoe here in Upper Canada in the 1890s abolished slavery here. So that, that, that is a huge factor in explaining how the society then can, how that society essentially has had a low-grade civil war, really, from the outset. And we get the occasional rebellion. Um, and then we uh, decide that we like peace, order, and good government better, and we uh, we get back to mutual accommodation. So, Michael, I, I just uh, ask you a quick follow up on that because it seems to me Trump is, as an individual, is a is a you know a unique guy. He's a he's a he's a one off, but what he tapped into the the disaffection, the sense of being left behind, was was a left right issue. He got a lot of Democrats, uh, white uh, uh, working poor Democrats as well. Do we have, do you have any sense of what that sort of disaffected or population in Canada that feels like it's been left behind by modernity? Do we, do we have a sense of that? It seems to me it must be a lot lower here, but do you have a sense of that? I'm sorry that I'm throwing that question at you, but I, it does seem to me 
that that's driving a lot of what we're seeing in the U.S. This this you know the parents worked at, in manufacturing, the children are working at Walmart, right. and there's just this real sense that some people did really well, but that a large share. 30, 40% of the population have basically been left behind in the U.S. So do you have a sense of what that looks like in Canada or the, or the thinking there? Well, the, the, my, my sense is that it's, it has a lot to do with status recognition, status anxiety. And uh, what we have is a significant proportion of the population that don't like social change. They don't like feminism and gender equality. Uh, that is, they find that's threatening. Um, again, the... The Civil Rights Movement, the Voter Voting Rights Act in the 1960s, generated a backlash, which Richard Nixon exploited uh, by uh, appealing to the silent majority of people who did not want to see uh, equality among the races in the United States. Who are threatened by this? Well, it turns out that the people threatened by it are kind of older, kind of white, and kind of male, uh, and a group who's feeling that all these other minorities, you know, who are saying they want to be equal to those older white men um, are threatening them and they're threatening their status. And so you get a backlash against modernity. In addition, of course, uh, you've got the, econ the economic uh, factor is uh, China joins uh, the World Trade Organization in 2003. Huge numbers of jobs uh, uh, switch from, you know, the Midwest and are over in Guangdong and in China. Uh, and of course, they are in a culture that does not have typically strong government intervention to help the transition of those workers. Uh, and in fact, a lot of those workers are anti-government. So they are feeling vulnerable. Canada had to adjust when we had the free trade agreement with the United States. And I can remember here in Kitchener-Waterloo area, I'm, I'm a boy from Walkerton, Ontario, which is the northwest of of Toronto, you know, the furniture business took a real hit, but we also had governments that helped retrain people. Or we built community colleges and universities in these remote areas that gave employment to people. We had activist government helping people adapt to the free trade agreement we had with the Americans that later became a North American free trade agreement. Now I'm going to give maybe a, another thought that I have talked about as well. Only 10% of American workers are members of labor unions. People in labor unions get higher salaries, better benefits, better sick benefits, and so on, better pensions. The proportion of Canadians who are in labor unions is a third, a third versus 10%. Think of that huge number of workers, working class people who are in a, in a, have stable jobs with pensions, with good, uh, you know, with good benefits, um, and who have an activist government who are going to help them adjust if if their industry is under a threat. So you've got the status anxiety issue. You've got the economic issue in the United States. You've got a country which actually really, it's funny that it's a, it's a country that wanted to see how little government they could have. They wanted the action to be in the private sector, and then on Sunday to go to church. And we were, of course, built ourselves in 1867 in reaction to what was going on in the United States. It was a civil war going on. We were afraid that the Americans, armed to the teeth, might want to finish off these British colonies in North 
John A. McDonald and his colleagues uh, got together and, and reluctantly, and we know how reluctant Nova Scotia was, I think they were in and then out and then back in again. I kept, Don, you guys can tell me the story, but everybody joins reluctantly. Um, we didn't like each other very much, but we sure feared the Americans more. And we, of course, then unite in a country with, again, this mutual accommodation of, of French and English, regions getting along, uh, compromise, and desiring to solve our problems, not by fighting to see who was right, but talking ourselves to death and, and then coming up with a compromise. Michael, in 2006, you founded the Environics Institute for Survey Research, a non, not-for-profit company focused on areas of interest that rarely receive attention. What was the main purpose of that institute, and why did you think it was important to put it together? First of all, in the, by the mid-2000s, that's 2000 to 2010, uh, I saw two things happening. First, governments... Uh, we're moving away from commissioning basic research about the evolution of public attitudes. And governments are, were pretty important clients for that kind of work that we were doing. Second, I was moving away from running the day-to-day -day business operations of, of the Enveronics company. And, uh, but there were still important issues, still crying out for attention. And I was no less interested in understanding them. So that's why I founded the Enveronics Institute for Survey Research, which, as you say, it's, it's a not-for-profit organization. It's independent from the commercial Enveronics Research Company. And we do studies that I think need to be done, uh, regardless of whether or not they would be profitable in a, in a commercial sense. So our mandate is to conduct in-depth public opinion and social research on issues shaping Canada's future. And it's through such research, I think that Canadians can better understand themselves and their changing society. So in recent months, you've looked at uh, issues such as race relations, immigration and refugees, women's equality, workplace regulations and culture and indigenous relations. There does seem to be a, a lot more uh, focus on that now in, in the current environment, which is a really good thing. And you're informing that with all of your research. Uh, but can you tell us who uses that research and who actually pays for that? You talked a bit about mm -hmm. whether or not it's profitable or not, but are, are mm -hmm. you actually able to fund that research and who uses it? Okay, let me answer the second question first. The research is co-funded by the Institute itself and its partners. So we have partnered with hundreds, have partnered with hundreds of organizations across the country, uh, including different governments, NGOs, universities, think tanks, businesses, and so on. Uh, people don't hire us to run a survey. For that, they have to go to the research company. They partner with us, and we mutually decide what are the topics we should be looking at, uh, and then how should we go about doing that research. Uh, when we see a, an issue that needs attention or identify a group of Canadians who we need to hear from, we join together and co-fund the study. Uh, the information is used first and foremost, first and foremost to shape the public discussion about who we are, where the country is heading. Everything we do is shared widely. The data we collect and the reports we write are all placed in the public domain. And quite often our data is used to refute conventional wisdom. People thought the blockade set up in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en First Nation at the beginning of 2020 would create a backlash against Indigenous people. And in our research, the opposite happened. People thought the arrival of, of, uh, of immigrant or people seeking um, um, 
asylum in Canada, uh, so-called irregular immigrants from uh, over the border of Manitoba and Quebec would make Canadians you know, xenophobic and want to close our borders. In fact, we reacted in the opposite way in making our borders more open to immigrants and refugees. So it's easy to make assumptions uh, about what most people think. We are inundated every day with news from the United States. I find time after time, people are assuming that the research that's coming out of the States applies equally to Canada. And of course, I shake my head and say, oh, darn it. Pew has just done a study. Now we've got to go and do a study. And so that I can inform the opinion leaders in this country and the journalists and so on, don't take those numbers from elsewhere and assume they apply here. It's, uh, it's like a mission. I feel like Don Quixote uh, <laughs> on my horse. With, and, uh, and so that is a, a lot of what is motivating me is the desire for Canadians to understand that their country is unique in its social values. It's got a trajectory. Some people say I do this to it's because I'm anti-American. It's not that. It's that I want us to understand that we are in going in another trajectory. We have a different, uh, many areas where the values and attitudes of Canadians and Americans are diverging. And if we're going to have good public policy and good corporate policy, we should understand that. Yeah, and one of the best examples of that is the report you just released in December called Democracy and Political Polarization in Canada and the U.S., uh, we've talked quite a bit about your views and, and your findings, uh, so I think we'll uh, just recommend that listeners download or, or take a look at that report, and I'll turn it over to Don to talk to you a little bit about the Freedom Convoy. We're uh, obviously in the middle of something uh, significant in Canada. Uh, how concerning is it to you uh, that uh, the, the Freedom Convoy is... Uh, is uh, perhaps uh, increasing polarization uh, within Canada? Well, interesting, Con increasing polarization. Well, let, let's start with whose attitudes and values this Freedom Convoy is reflecting. From our research, and it's a lot of research, it's about 10% of Canadians who are anti-vax or, or really vaccine hesitant. So that's 10%. It's 10% of what, what are we now, 37 million, 3.7 million? That's a lot of Canadians. Thank heaven we don't have 3.7 million Canadians <laughs> marching on, on our provincial and federal capital. Um, I was, you know, I've been concerned about, you know, divisions in Canada. I remember when 1995, when half of Quebec wanted to leave Canada and we came pretty close to splitting up in that year. But putting it all in perspective, I kind of paraphrase Winston Churchill and say, you know, we may be the worst country in the world with the deepest divisions, except for all the others. Um, and I think we will find, you know, a path to, to mutual accommodation on this. As for the Freedom Convoy, I think of anything, what they've, they probably haven't done their cause, they've done their cause a disservice. They probably united the other 90% in saying, what is going on with these people? Um, and are kind of getting impatient with our, you know, our, our municipal government, our provincial government, our federal government um, in bringing back peace, order and good government. Like, would you people, you know, please do something about this. And uh, so I, I suspect that, you know, the 90 percent who believe that we got to have mandates and 
and, and vaccines and, and uh, restrictions and so on. Now we're all getting, we're all sick of COVID. And I say this, you know, uh, both uh, in both senses of the word. Um, and we do want those restrictions gone, but we want a data-driven, uh, uh, scientific, medically sensible uh, way of gradually getting rid of these restrictions so that we don't have another, you know, so that next fall we don't have another uh, incident like we've had a couple of times so far. So, you know, we've, as I said, 900,000 COVID-related deaths in the U.S. compared to 35,000 here. I mean, we, we would have 100,000 more people dead in Canada had we not had we taken the route that the Americans did. Those 100,000 people could be our in our family, our relatives, you know, people in our community. So uh, I think, however, you know, it only takes one person to kill a president or, or a prime minister. So we have to be in, you know, you know, Don knows about this with the normal distribution, the parabola. We have to be concerned about the tails of the normal distribution because if the tails of the distribution, even if they're 10%, um, they can cause a lot of disruption, as we're seeing now in Ottawa and at the border uh, and, uh, between Windsor and, and uh, Detroit and over at Sarnia, where on Port Huron. So I think we have to now become, go beyond, and our officials do, go beyond the surveys. Uh, we've got to be now digging deeper with other instruments, I guess, of understanding the people who uh, want to go beyond the the right to demonstrate, the right for some civil disobedience, and get into areas where their freedom, the freedom of the 10%, is interfering with the freedoms and safety of the other 90%. So this is going to require the, the peace order and good government that John A. Macdonald promised us. We, we would like that to continue in the year 2022 and beyond. It seems apparent that there's some evidence of diverging values within Canada, Michael, especially between the Western provinces, I guess, and the, and the rest of the country. What needs to be done to address some of these differences, in your opinion? Well, you know, we've always had regional tensions in Canada. Um, there have been times when they've been, you know, again, very serious with, you know, Quebec nearly leaving the country or at least voting in a referendum that they would be negotiating sovereignty. Uh, we've had Western alienation from, I mean, we had the Northwest rebellion, you know, we had rebellions in Toronto in 1837, 38, also in, in, in Montreal, they burned down the parliament buildings and so on. So, you know, Americans revolutionary, we are kind of rebellious. We have lost a few lives there. I don't know. You can get up to maybe a hundred in the Northwest rebellion. So the, wor the work we're doing on, at the Institute on Federalism has certainly shown an increase in so-called Western alienation, and especially in, in uh, 2019, but it has ebbed since then. It also shows that uh, the West, as you know, we use the thing just like Atlantic Canada. If I said Atlantic Canada, and you'll allow me to do that today, but then Within Atlantic Canada, they're going to say Nova Scotia, we're completely different from New Brunswick and New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. And from somebody from Prince Edward Island say, we're nothing like those people on the mainland. And then Newfoundlanders, oh, my God. And they they really mean it, that they're different. So so we do have, I don't know, you could call it the narcissism of small differences. I, I think they're charming, charming cultural differences. But if we, we lump the West together, the West has never 
been more divergent than it is. British Columbia used to be the most alienated. The people on the other side of the mountains over there, well, now they're actually, they look a lot more like Ontario and the rest of the country than they do like their, their cousins over there in, in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So I'd say that we still agree on much more uh, than, um, than we disagree on. And, and we have asked about a program that's understood by about five Canadians calling, called equalization, in which we take money from the wealthier, the people in the wealthier regions, and spread it out into the other provinces and regions in order that we can provide the same level of education and health care across the country. Equalization, to the degree that Canadians understand this program, is supported across the country in every province and region, including by the majority of people in Alberta. And I think that's pretty significant. So, of course, Don Mills and I are very interested in Atlantic Canada. That's the focus of this podcast. Your institute has done a lot of research in Atlantic Canada. Just this week, we found out that the population now is starting to grow strongly across the maritime provinces. Uh, interestingly enough, the region grew faster than the prairie provinces for the first time since the 1940s. Nova Scotia grew by 5%, which is about 1% per year, which is more or less what Don Mills has been calling for. So certainly good trends there. Most of that's driven mm -hmm. by immigration. Uh, but are there any major findings in your research uh, that would indicate there's a difference in values in this region, whether it's the Maritimes or Atlantic Canada, compared to the rest of the country? And before you answer that, there is, you know, there is a little bit, you're right, that there is a little bit of... Um, you know, differences between the provinces. The New Brunswickers are known as herring chokers and Nova Scotians <laughs> apparently are known as blue nosers. So I, I never really figured out why New Brunswick uh, has such a negative uh, nickname. But anyway, go ahead. You, you can say that. I can't say that. <laughs> you, you, get, you, get your, you get to choose your own group and then you can, uh, you can tease yourself. Um, yeah, you know, there really aren't huge value differences I think there's a bit of identity differences, obviously historical differences among the uh, uh, provinces of Atlantic Canada. And on questions about authority, you know, whether it's, you know, patriarchy and uh, different uh, types of authority, uh, questions of individual individualism, for example, people in Atlantic Canada and, and, and people in the prairies give pretty similar responses. Uh, that might surprise some people because there are stereotypes about collectivism in the East and rugged individualism in the West, but that's what they are. They're stereotypes. Uh, there are some differences. Certainly Newfoundlanders stand out in terms of identity. Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador are the only two provinces where they say their provincial identity is stronger for them than their Canadian identity. And I think it's fair to say that Atlantic Canadians still have a more favorable view of the role of government in general. They're not anti-government as uh, some other Canadians might be. Uh, one thing I think that gets overlooked is the openness of Atlantic Canadians to newcomers. Our surveys show that the region remains one of the most open to more immigration. And this is interesting because international research suggests that smaller, less wealthy, more rural, more white regions uh, of various Western countries are usually the most xenophobic. They're usually the most suspicious of strangers and, uh, and, and are against strangers. And you can think of Appalachia in the United States that is very much has that attitude. Appalachians do not want more people coming there at all. 
um, in the north of England or the south of Italy or the eastern part of Germany. Atlantic Canadians totally buck this trend, and it's fascinating, and it and I think it merits a lot more attention, uh, you know, by social scientists and economists. And and the fact is is that your population is growing. Most of Canadians' population isn't growing. We're we're uh, slightly below replacement level in terms of the number of children a woman is going to have in her lifetime. And so the only way the Canadians can continue to grow in our research shows that we do want to grow, we do want to be a more populous country, is through immigration and bringing in refugees as well. Atlantic Canada leads uh, uh, leads the country in wishing to see more immigration uh, come to their country, uh, come to their region, come to their uh, to their province, their city, or even their small town. Uh, and it is a remarkable... It, it is a remarkable behavioral and attitudinal consequence of the mutual accommodation that has been the story of the evolution of our country. And I really hope that holds because I think that attitude, the public support for immigration is going to be so important moving forward. Although I will say I presented to a national conference on immigration a couple of years ago before the pandemic, and I had immigrants coming up to me from Ontario saying, we don't want more immigrants. There's too many immigrants in Toronto. So, so there, you know, there is trying to figure out what that looks like in each province is very interesting. Uh, I have one more question for you. I just wanted to ask you about COVID response. Uh, Atlantic Canada had a more aggressive response compared to the rest of the country. And um, at least until now, better overall results in terms of deaths and, and uh, impact on the healthcare system. There's a higher level of compliance. At least that's what we believe here in terms of the the social restriction and the and the and the activities taken to restrain uh, uh, the pandemic, and among the highest rates of vaccine vaccination in the country. So, do you think there's something different here, or do you think that has to do with just this more the less pon- population concentration? Why do you think there was there was no, a there, difference here versus the rest the of values? The no, the values in the region would predict. <clears throat> that you know the the people in Atlantic Canada are less oriented to individualistic materialism. Um, I don't know how many Lamborghini dealerships you've got in Atlantic Canada, but I would expect there are very few. That the aspiration that someday I'm going to you know <laughs> get a Ferrari or a Lamborghini and drive it up and down the main street is is actually not what people think is what life is all about in Atlantic Canada. Atlantic Canada leans more towards family. It leads it, it, a sense of duty to your community, uh, communitarian values, and so on. Atlantic Canadians care about their neighbors, uh, and they even have an orientation to strangers that, as I said just a while ago, is is remarkable, an orientation to openness. Uh, <laughs> you know, you stop for directions in St. John's, Newfoundland. They don't give you directions. They put you in their car and they drive you where you wanted to go. Uh, I've seen it. It's happened to me. And uh, that's not going to happen in Toronto. I can tell you that. So uh, we see a strong orientation to, again, wanting immigrants, uh, desire to sponsor refugees and so on in this region. And I actually have invented a word that kind of describes this mental posture. And it's called xenophilia. It's actually liking the other. It's the opposite of xenophobia. And um, I don't know whether we can credit Atlantic Canadians with creating this, but, um, and you can steal it if you want, but I might write a book called Xenophilia someday as the, as the ultimate evolution of where we are. You certainly see this with young people. They go 
bumping into people with different backgrounds and boy, they become friends and we survey people. As you get younger in our surveys, you're finding more and more people with friendships of people of radically different backgrounds or religions. They become best friends. And in some cases, <laughs> they form unions and have beautiful babies. And of course, this is maybe the ultimate Canadian. We won't know on, you know, for another three or 400 years. So the again, the idea that Atlantic Canada is different with Newfoundland at the head of the at the head of the pack in, in this, in some respects, this renowned generosity is, of course, being celebrated by audiences in Toronto and on Broadway with uh, who've enjoyed the musical Come From Away. And if, if there's anything that's even celebrated in popular culture, that kind of that those kinds of values of openness and caring for others. And uh, it's not just a stereotype. It's it is how people think and how they behave. Michael, finally, given all that we've been through the last couple of years, what is your outlook for the country going forward? I'm cautiously optimistic. Of course, I'm a Canadian, so I have to be understated. If I say it too loudly, God will hear me and <laughs> take it all away. So <laughs> I can't be cocky about this. Um, you know, I am concerned. I'm probably more concerned about my cousins and business colleagues in the United States and that in that country. I have dear friends who live in California and live in Connecticut. So I'm a bit more concerned about the United States. Given that I'm concerned about the United States, then I have to be concerned about Canada. Uh, now, I'd rather be Canada uh, next door to the United States than Ukraine next door to, to Russia or to be a, a Uyghur in China. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm able to put it in perspective, but... Um, and I am concerned with the spillover effects of radicalism and extremism in the United States, and, and it does have an effect in Canada. We're also seeing that there's possibly funding coming from the United States that's supporting the more radical truckers who are in Ottawa. So, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that our institutions will be strong. I don't think Canadian democracy is in danger, uh, but I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm superstitious. I'm touching wood and and crossing my fingers, uh, but believe eternal vigilance, um, we, we will be able to maintain the strength of our country and its dedication to mutual accommodation, multiculturalism, and, um, and taking care of each other in a peaceful way. Michael, it's been a great pleasure having you as a guest on our Insights podcast. I'm delighted that you uh, agreed to join us, and, and thank you so much for being part of our podcast. Well, it's been a, an enjoyable morning. Gentlemen, Don and David, good luck with your podcasts. And uh, I hope the next time I'm in your territory, we'll get together and share a glass of Chardonnay. That is a deal. Thanks. <laughs> You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.